Kathy. And I'm Justin. And, and this, this is, is Comics First. Thank you for listening to another Comics First podcast, your source for in-depth comics analysis. I'm your host, Justin, and I am joined by my amazing two co-hosts, Kathleen. Greetings. And Tom. Hi, guys. Um, I like your greetings, Kathy, because it was like, it was kind of Star Trek-y. I am glad <laughs> to hear it, you man. Like Live long and prosper. <laughs> Right, but it's rest in peace. <laughs> um, it's interesting because we're not going to talk about Star Trek, but we are going to talk about <laughs> Star Wars a little bit. And to that end, Tim Stevens is our guest again. And just to give you some more background on him, he is a freelance writer who is also pursuing his side D. Uh, you can most often catch his work at Marvel Comics at the homepage for Marvel Comics, marvel.com. And his writing runs the gamut from pop culture to politics to long form meditations on life and death, as we say, the fun stuff. And he is also, now we can say this with full faith, an incredible podcast guest <laughs> so we recommend him for that and uh just a little hint and today we're going to be talking about the women of spider man uh, or as i like to call it the spider women podcast because now there are several spider women's women people it's hard to know what to do with these <laughs> nouns these generic I, nouns I, the women and of the first spider. way you phrased it made it sound like we're going to talk about spider-man's girlfriends yeah, too. there's some kind of spider <laughs> well, harem that I, we're discussing well this could be a spider harem because two of his girlfriends are in one of these books mm. so True. maybe not a harem but maybe a like menage a trois I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There isn't like a, an analog in the spider world. Oh, spider groupies. I like that. Spider that's groupies. Cute. That's perfect. Yeah. I could put that on a t-shirt. That sounds good. Exactly. Right. It's much better than spider menage a trois, which is not good. But just a reminder to everyone where you can find us. And that's uh, on comicsfirst.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash comicsfirst, on Twitter at, at comicsfirst, on YouTube at youtube.com slash TV, And please, please check out our video reviews and our interviews. Last week, we did a podcast on Daredevil, and we talked about Joe Camarodna's lettering and how amazing it was. And we have two video interviews with him, and Tom has a written interview with him coming up really soon. So uh, don't forget to check those out. And again, we're going to be talking a little bit about Star Wars because Tim here has an amazing announcement that he's going to make. And should we make it now or should we make it at the end of the podcast? It's entirely up to you. It's your show. Oh, my God. All this pressure it's incredible power i know what you do i well how will i wield it i feel like frodo with a ring right now Man, you need some great responsibility <laughs> to go with it i think i do so, my god <laughs> what? that just changed my life um, you just did a spider-man mood kathy <laughs> yeah, right. i've read about all of the spider groupies for this podcast so <laughs> right i think that shot is definitely starting to uh i'm just gonna Take its effect. We're going to edit that part out. <laughs> no, don't, don't worry. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Star Wars first, and then we're going to get into the Spider Women, or the Spider-Man Groupies? What is it? Yeah, oh, the Spider Groupies. Spider Groupies. Spider Groupies, okay. <laughs> no, even though it's slightly, it's cute, but it's also kind of derogative. <laughs> it is, right? <laughs> but, yeah. Because in some cases, like, Gwen Stacy is like the new Spider-Man. Yeah, and she doesn't have any reliance on Peter Parker at all, unless he's a little pig. Right, right, yeah. 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 Those gender dynamics the, are fine. I have to say. The first Spider-Woman, Marvel actually only made her because Stanley realized if he didn't, somebody else would coin the term first. Mm. And he didn't want to lose the copyright um, for the term. So that was the only reason Spider-Woman got first introduced. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow, Spider-Woman, Star Wars, I'm pulled in so many different directions. <laughs> but before we get into Spider-Women, let's talk about Star Wars. So, Tim, you have this amazing announcement. Let's talk a little bit about your exposure uh, to the series. Uh, sure. 
The first time I encountered the series was actually Christmas when I was much younger. My cousins who we were seeing for Christmas had gotten the VHS box set. So again, I was much younger back then. And I sort of watched it as I was running in and out of the room. So the result was kind of a hodgepodge of scenes from three different movies that I kind of created a movie in my own head. And I never really sat down to watch them until they were re-released in theaters. And that's sort of when I actually got a clear indication of like, oh, that's how that story fits together. That, that was from that movie and that's from that one. So Cool. It says here, history beyond first exposure. Is that one of your questions, Tom? Uh, no, that was one of the notes that you'd gotten written down before me, Justin, I'm afraid. Oh, was that one yeah, of your notes? Yeah. Okay. Essentially, just beyond that first exposure, what's your history with the characters, the stories oh okay okay oh perfect so thank you for even phrasing it for me so beyond your first exposure to the series what's your history with the characters <laughs> well timing as it is i sort of missed the whole boat on the original set of like action figures and things like that the only one i had was ironically enough was one of the rebel alliance in their forced ear wear mm. for return of the jedi but like any kid who grew up in america during this time period you know star wars was sort of part of your life it was weaved in the fabric and then the really release in theaters gave me an appreciation for why and then i was working in a bookstore when the prequels were coming out the first prequel and jar jar binks at the time was going to be the huge breakout star so wow did that not go as planned (laughs) no no not at all but because of that they're pushing him hard and we had a giant or not giant but apparently (laughs) life-sized jar jar binks standee one of those cardboard things had a sign on it that said how tall is jar jar binks and he lifted the sign and it says jar jar binks is six feet five inches tall wow and that became the sort of it was like a loyalty oath at the bookstore like at any point you'd be like hey how tall is jar jar binks and the person responded kind and it was like they belonged there but then the movie came out and it turned out that jar jar binks was not a big deal so we well he was just not in that direction so we quickly <laughs> got rid of the standee pretended like that never happened <laughs> it's true i wonder in what alternate realities jar jar binks is like an alien sex symbol <laughs> well think about it. the guy who did it was sort of the pioneer of motion capture but we don't talk about him anymore because a the character but andy circus has sort of supplanted him as that kind of key figure yeah. in the development of motion capture and if jar jar binks had i don't know been written differently or spoke with a different accent perhaps <laughs> or you know just been less kidified, if you will. Uh, we might be having a very different <laughs> conversation about who is the father of motion capture than this mm. poor guy. I always love the fact that it's uh, Jar Jar Binks who pushes the motion to give Senator Palpatine the emergency powers. Yeah. So we have Jar Jar Binks to thank for the Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just noticing that those chocolate drinks didn't go over very well because neither of you have them, but it's okay. <laughs> um, for next time, I'll make something that's less gross but anyway (laughs) um what were some of your favorite films and or characters of the series uh well for me always empire stands out as my favorite and uh ironically it's the of the original it's the one not directed by george lucas Mm. it's directed by Lawrence kasdan but it just felt more complicated more complex took the themes of the first one and really integrated them into a larger sense of the universe beyond just what was happening in luke's world and characters wise i mean they're great characters actually when we talk about the announcement, um, one of the things I did was went back and watched all the movies. And in the original trilogy, something I'd kind of forgotten is there's a huge amount of humanity, or whatever the term you want to use, because uh, they're aliens, I guess, ultimately. But, you know, that there's humor and they have depth in ways that I had kind of forgotten, having not revisited them in years. And so difficult to choose a standout character because any, you know, Luke, Leia, Han, uh, Chewbacca, the droids, Darth Vader himself, even the Emperor, who, I mean, he's 
evil to the core, but he's compelling in that evilness. So yes. all those characters, I think, are, are great. So uh, we got into this a little bit before, but how was your feeling before the prequels, and how was your feeling about the movies after seeing them? Well, the prequels came pretty quickly after the re-releases in theater. So in terms of my own personal interest in Star Wars, it was kind of as high as it had ever been. And I remember when the first trailer was released, how excited everyone got and how incredible that was cut together and the music and so on. And coming off that, it was hard not to be disappointed. Although, I don't remember, but I remember a lot of people had the reaction that we had been so convinced it was going to be incredible that you came out of the first showing of um, Phantom Menace still kind of saying that it was good. And it was one of those things like your brain had tricked you to the point that uh, you really needed to believe that because you would put so much effort into it. In revisiting them, they definitely skew younger than the original trilogy, I think. So there's that. There's the fact that I was encountering them in adulthood, essentially, as opposed to as a kid, uh, as were so many of the original fans. But also, it really valued sort of technical achievement over the characters, I, I felt, um, in retrospect, in a way the original trilogy hadn't. And so, like I said, a lot of the humanity that you found was lost because it was so much more devoted to spectacle. So how are you feeling now that the next film is relatively close to being released? Well, I mean, I know a lot of people have issues with them, but I I like J.J. Abram overall, so I'm excited about that. Trailer had a lot more feel of of weight and grit than the uh, prequels did. You know, it seemed more grounded in that kind of feel of the original trilogy than the the whiz-bang of the prequels. Uh, So I'm hopeful. I am cautiously optimistic, I guess we'll say. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, with the original trilogy, there's something there that's even now is compelling, that arc of Anakin. However it's told, it is an incredibly heartbreaking thing. So the mechanics of storytelling is still there. Uh, It just didn't deliver. So I believe, you know, that Star Wars still has a lot of rich stories to tell. There's the capacity to tap into that here. Well, how is it to look at pop culture properties through a psychological lens? And does it change your appreciation of the film? Well, I mean, like I said, with the... It didn't change my appreciation, but it gave me insight into what could have happened with the prequels. You know, that... Like I said, the Anakin arc can be incredibly heartbreaking if told correctly. So to view it through psychological terms, you know, you gain a real appreciation for... I mean, a lot of ways he's broken when they find him, even though he says things like, yay, in the first movie. I believe it was yippee. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You know, and he seems, he presents as sort of a, a kid typical of his age, but there's already been a lot of tragedy that's kind of, he's a slave, essentially, when you find him. And the way the Jedi Council is that they don't set out to exploit him necessarily, but they don't provide him with a lot of support. They don't really seem aware of what's happened to him before that point. So those are all things that I didn't necessarily get on a simple viewing of them, you know, to view it through psychological terms, those things are more present. And I think it changes your appreciation of anything, but I think that's the same with any kind of interpretation you apply, whether it be the literature, books, comics, movies, that uh, when you view it through a different lens, you can notice things that you didn't see the first time around, for better or for ill. How did you feel about the acting in the prequels? Because I know some people were iffy on... Uh, well, I'm not a great actor, so I always try not to be too... But, you know, from anything I've heard about George Lucas, there's a lot of sort of his, you know, okay, point the camera, okay, now act. There wasn't necessarily a lot of guidance to that. And he was dealing with a much younger cast. So you see some of that that rust, if you will. Or not rust because they haven't started, but sort of, of that newness. You know, if you look at Hayden Christensen and say Shattered Glass, that's a man who can act. But you don't necessarily get that from the prequels. Natalie Portman won an Academy Award for Black Swan, but you don't necessarily see that in the prequels. Even somebody like Ewan McGregor, who plays Obi-Wan, who probably comes out looking the best, you wouldn't rank any of those three films in his, say, top five, top ten acting jobs. 
So you it's disappointing. Maybe it could have been a little bit stronger. Correct. It's okay. disappointing. Put it that way. It is interesting to hear you talk in the previous question about what understanding psychology added to the story for you, though, because mm-hmm. so so many people who just watch the movies, it's easy to blame it on the directing and the acting where it failed. But I think it's uh, it has me thinking like, well, maybe if they took a more psychological approach to the character instead of just mm-hmm. making him a kid for kids in the movie theaters that maybe could have overcome some of the difficulties with directing and acting if that was an issue. Yeah, I could certainly. I think there's a lot of truth there. I think the best illustration with that one is actually with the novelizations. If you pick up the novelization that Matthew Stover did of Revenge of the Sith, it is superb. It's really well written. It digs into the characters. It has a repeating coda. This is what it feels to be Anakin Skywalker. And the whole descent that he has is so dramatically done. And that's because Matthew Stover, he's really committed to the story, to the characters. He digs so deep into them. I seriously recommend that novelization because I got to be honest, I actually read the novelization before I watched the film of Revenge of the Sith. And I walked away feeling like I just watched something completely different. I didn't even feel like they were the same story. But because he'd taken a much deeper, more character-driven lens to that same narrative journey, it struck me so much more powerfully. Mm-hmm. So did you ever have a chance to read The Expanding Universe before it came to Marvel? Here and there, I wasn't great about it. I have in my bookshelf or in my book collection a expanded book universe book, probably one of the first ones that I took out of the library in middle school uh, that I apparently never returned. And <laughs> I remember nothing about it, unfortunately, so it makes the crime sort of doubly uh, disappointing. But here and there, I'd pick things up. Uh, Dark Horse had uh, a one-off that was Darth Maul meeting Darth Vader for the first time. That intrigued me because yes. Darth Vader is an incredibly <laughs> complex character, and Darth Maul had a great look that you were just hoping somebody would capitalize on. So there were like one-offs that i connect with here and there. But for me, Star Wars were the movies more than anything else, and I just didn't engage the property in the way a lot of people have. That having been said, I've really enjoyed the new books now, in part of being persuaded to pick them up by the talent who was connected less than, which isn't to say Star Wars doesn't mean something to me, but now that I'm at a point where I can be aware of writers and artists in a way that I wasn't necessarily earlier, that that was more of an attraction for me than necessarily like I hunger for stories about what happened between Empire and Returns. Or return. So I remember Tom and I were doing some work for Comics First, and we were figuring out the sales for January, and we noticed that uh, Star Wars had sold over or almost a million copies. I think it ended up breaking a million, yes. Wow. Yeah, it uh, broke it just into the beginning of February. Oh, yep. did it? Okay. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So how do you feel about Star Wars being a successful Marvel comic? It's kind of incredible. It's incredible because there's a whole convergence of things happening, you know. Marvel and Disney and Star Wars are now coexisting under the same umbrella. And that's, you know, flashback to 13-year-old Tim Stevens and tell him, like, these things are coming back. These Marvel movies will exist and it will all be happening under Disney's umbrella. And there's no part of that that I would have believed. So that's kind of incredible. (laughs) And that, you know, a Star Wars comic can sell a million copies at a time when comics don't sell like that. shows that people are are hungry for that content and uh, want great stories based in the Star Wars universe. You know, in in fairness to say Dark Horse, who was delivering very good stories, Marvel has um, just a bigger market share. We've got a bigger bullhorn to proclaim the greatness of our stories. So, you know, I think that that gooses the sales as well. I think as well, there was an element of Star Wars is coming home 
to it because um, Marvel had been the first company right. that did Star Wars comics, mm-hmm. and quite cleverly, Marvel marketed it very much as Star Wars is coming home. Yeah, at just the right angle to get the old school fans really, really, really g'd up about it, mm-hmm. um, because it felt nostalgic right. in the idea of wow, Marvel have this property again. Let's see what they do with it. Um, and I think that was a brilliant marketing move as well. And it fits the whole narrative of Star Wars in general right now, which is what you love about Star Wars is coming back. You know, it's yeah. coming back to the company that first did the comics. Um, it's coming back to the first trilogy's sort of feel and look. So I, I think that you're right. It hooks into a lot of that that promise of this isn't just a continuation of the story. This is revisiting the things you loved about the story in a new yeah. story. So I'm going to open this question up to everyone. But what is it about Star Wars that makes people go so apeshit about it? Like, why do we love it so much as a culture, um, as a society? What is it tapped into that's so <laughs> important? I mean, there's the easy answer that George Lucas had like studied myth and he used mythic structures when like deliberately used mythic structures when writing the original trilogy. So there there are story structures that we all recognize. And then I think that it's really hard to overestimate how amazing those effects were when they came out in the late 1970s, that it was just so imaginative and so huge. And, um, you know, one of the best uses of truly American technology, which is the Hollywood movie. And so exciting. And I was telling you the last time we talked about this, Justin, that the first one still holds up first time you see a huge spaceship fly over the screen it still feels like you're looking at a real spaceship so i think those are like the easy answers like a they looked amazing b they were deliberately engineered for the narrative to strike a chord in western people watching yeah i mean you said that's easy answer but i do think it's also a big answer that you know that they were uh George Lucas made an intentional effort to study what worked about other stories and then to use elements from those stories to make a brand new one. It also happened to hit at a perfect time that blockbusters were largely a new creation, or creation itself, quite the right word, but largely a new thing at that point. You know, Jaws preceded it, but more by and large, they didn't exist yet. And so Star Wars has the designation of being one of the first films that became important not just to see at some point, but to see very soon, to see multiple times, to see as an experience, not just as a, this is a movie you might like. And I think all of that sort of you know, ingrained uh, itself in the collective memory of the United States and beyond after that. Tom, what do you think? I think there are a couple of elements I'd add to that. All of that was brilliant and spot on. The other thing I'd add, it, though, is that Lucas and Alan Dean Foster, who was heavily involved with it um, at the outset, they picked up on a couple of themes that were really perfectly timed. So the theme of hope at a time when tension was there and the Cold War was rumbling and things like that. You've got a really powerful message where an ordinary guy who's just on a stranded desert planet in the middle of nowhere suddenly is the guy who changes the course of the galaxy and if you go back and forget almost forget the i am your father bit when that first film came out the message there was hope that an anybody could be a hero luke skywalker was just a whiny kid who happened to have the force from a backwater planet there was none of the history or heritage attached to him at that point. So the first connection people had with Luke Skywalker was just an everyday guy who stood for hope. And I think that message was perfectly pitched for just what the American culture and beyond that 
the whole Western world, really, was needing to hear at that time. I think it was just the perfect message at the perfect moment. And from there, Empire Strikes Back, that, to me, upped the ante massively as well. The idea of the villains winning at the end of that film. It was really one of the first franchises that dared to have the bad guys get the upper hand by the end of the film. That was completely counter to anything that people had expected from Hollywood, and it gripped people so that Empire became a classic, and people just wanted to see Return of the Jedi to know how do the good guys get back on their feet again? What's going to happen here? And that meant when you got to Return of the Jedi, people could ignore the question like, how little bear things can beat up trained military soldiers. And they could look beyond that and just enjoy the story and the characters because they already had that strong emotional connection to it. So I think there was a brilliant pitch that was so well-timed for Star Wars. So Tim has this uh, really amazing Star Wars announcement. <laughs> so, But we're going to wait till the end of the episode to fully give it. But we're going to talk about spider groupies. But do you want to tease the announcement a little bit? So that's going to come at the end of the episode. Stay tuned for an announcement of something I am doing with Star Wars. <laughs> and might I suggest Women of the Spider? Women of the Spider is Ooh, great. That's a yeah. better way of yeah. putting yeah. it. Women better. of the Spider, yeah. <laughs> we actually have some trouble titling some of our podcast episodes. There was the uh, the Rogue one, which is still really rough, but yeah. <laughs> We're still working through it. Okay, so uh, stay tuned and we will come back with you with uh, some Women of the Spider. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Oh, or maybe if you wanted to be alliterative, women of the web. Oh, oh very nice. I like that. <laughs> Does that sound like an internet thing? Um, <laughs> so we are back, and we are talking about women of the web, women of Spider-Man, women of the spider, right? Sure. And also the more derogatory spider groupies, <laughs> which may or may not be stricken from the record. So let's get to some questions about that. We're going to start talking about Jessica Drew, the original Spider-Woman, and her origin story in Spider-Woman Origin. So I guess I thought it was interesting that the first issue of the book opened and started way before Jessica Drew was even born. And the story, in a sense, was very much about her mother and her father. Uh, what did you guys think about that? Or do you disagree? I think that's factually accurate that the story started before she was born. Actually, accurate is correct. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know, it's it's fitting with the whole origin kind of structure. I mean, I think they're fun to read, but they're never going to be the best comic that you've ever read yeah. because it's filling in blanks. And so to start with the parents feels a bit like a paint-by-the-numbers decision, but it also makes sense in that they're starting with the beginning. And so starting I'm pretty... before the beginning, even. Uh, her mother was pregnant right. with She's her. a fetus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, so she got her ability. That's when she got her abilities. So I guess we're, especially with X-Men, we're used to origin stories that are like coinciding with the onset of puberty. So that probably is yeah. what is making this feel like, oh, it's really early. We're going back to ancient history before the person was even born. <laughs> but it makes sense in this instance, certainly. I have to be honest, I got a little bit irritated at too many continuity nods like mount wundergar windham miles warren the jackal from spider-man villains it irritated me how many characters origins were being tied together in one place it just felt a little bit too convenient to me so i gotta be honest i reacted a little bit negatively to that bit and that's just in the first issue right yeah. Okay. What about you, Tim? Well, to specifically speak to the parents' part, I think 
her story starts before she is born because it starts with the father's obsession with altering DNA, which is what yeah. allows her to be created after that. And to speak to what Thomas or Tom was saying, there's a line there between complex and complicated, and I thought that first issue and the storyline overall treads back and forth on that. That oftentimes it's a little. Uh, negative to say it confuses the two. I don't necessarily think that's what it is, but oftentimes it throws in so many elements in search of being complex that it ends up being more complicated than anything else. And sort of littering in the aspects of continuity has that effect. The problem for me is I don't know how much of that is based on her original conception because I wasn't True. very familiar with her her origins before reading Origin. Oh, well, do you know that it. her original origin was that she was a spider turned into a woman? And um, it went so badly with the fans, they quickly came up with another origin story. <laughs> yeah. And then this was even the retcon version of that. Okay. Yeah. Miles Warren was never featured in the originals at all, in the original two either. So some of this, they'd retroactively added extra degrees of continuity to it. <laughs> um, and we talked about the father's obsession with DNA. Do we ever really get where that comes from for him? I think it's just his area of study and that it's sort of consumed his all his relationships his relationship to his wife it eventually destroys it literally infects his daughter and on from there you know to the point that he in essence chooses hydra over his daughter because yeah. he needs to keep studying he needs to keep analyzing things i think he stopped seeing people as people and started seeing them as bundles of dna to manipulate the idea of slicing dna in the way that he was trying to do was almost perfectly designed to dehumanize people because you were just looking at oh this person is a piece of dna code that i can rewrite and in a way the study of dna is something that is quite open to that kind of perspective um because you get the whole kind of um almost behavioralism where a person is said oh their moods are just written into their dna we found the gene that makes people happier and it's as though personality and individuality has gone in that area of science sometimes, or how it's portrayed in the media. And people are just bits of coding. And I think that's the kind of perspective the father had got now. He'd slipped to this idea that people are just these bits of code, and because he's manipulating them, well, they're just not that important anymore, are they? They're just toys. And you can see that in his reunion with Jessica, and I can't remember if it's three or four, where she's trying to talk to him about the fact that she thought he was dead, and he just wants to get a vial of her blood so he can analyze what's happened to her since. You know, the first thing he says yeah. to her, I think, is, oh my gosh, you look incredible. And you think it's because it's a father seeing his daughter all grown up, but it turns out it's more like a scientist viewing his creation. Like, yes. That's what is incredible to him, that he created this thing, not that, oh my god, my daughter's all grown up. He doesn't have that reaction. Yeah, I think we've hit all the high points. It, it definitely, I, I don't know that we really get a very personal exploration of what makes her father so obsessed with DNA, but I think it's definitely a reflection of some of the anxieties that people feel around what we imagine to be possible with genetic technology. Some of the concerns that people immediately have, like yeah. Tom and Tim were suggesting, like once you know the code to make a person once you use scorpion dna in a tomato what's the end of that how can a person know how to assemble the composite parts of a person and still see them as more than just code realized in 
carbon, etc. I like that Jessica sort of takes after her mother because I think there's that scene, I believe it's the first or second issue where she takes the spider, like just like her mother did, off the mm-hmm. yes. branch of it. And, you know, it shows how aware of other life forms and how, I don't know, how sweet she can be. And I guess I like that she took after her mother in that sense. Well, it also shows how she influences her mother, though. Because mm. in that first scene, you see her mother capture the spider and they keep it. Mm. And the scene with Jessica, she captures the spider and then she releases it. And then we start to see, uh, shortly after that, the mom changing and becoming more concerned about the father's research as a a negative and more concerned about Jessica living away from that. So in in much the same way as we talked about back in the Daredevil podcast, uh, it's a reciprocal relationship. You know, she changes her mom. She is very much like her mom, but she also changes her mom. Yeah. To me, that scene with the Wonder Girl Widow where she released the spider was almost like in that second, yes, she was like her mom, but she also transcended her mom's character as well. And was a step better as a person. Um, it just felt a very interesting note there. Um, yeah, that might just be me there. It's also interesting how she plays with the, or you know, when she takes the spider out of the casing that it's in, and the mm-hmm. spider doesn't bite her because she's. I, I gathered because she was so gentle with it, mm-hmm. and and I thought it also was a nod. Do you disagree, Tom? Um, I actually think the tip it was heading towards was the spider knew that it was, was safe also, because she okay. was, could sense the spider because it's Wonder Girl Widow DNA mm-hmm. that her genes were matching. So the spider, I think, there was supposed to be sensing something familiar, oh, something with I which see. it was comfortable. Um, you had the whole thing where her mum, I can't remember the exact wording, but she said something like, the, black, the Wonder Girl Widow will bite if you so much as look at it funny. Um, the idea that anyone even gently could play with a creature that's that poisonous and that kind of attitude and then not be a pointer. And I think that's why her dad, from that point on, was like, what does this mean? I want mm. to do tests. Very interesting. Because he was like, this doesn't make sense. How can anyone handle a Wonder Girl widow in the way this girl did? Um, so that's what I think was going on there, Miss Anne. I thought it was the first inkling of her as a superhero, actually, because here she's doing this really kind thing. They were going to take in the spider to do experiments on it, and she decides to let it go. So I have kind of mixed feelings about that. I yeah. think I think it makes sense in the the perspective that Tom sees it, if it's uh, like an indication of her sort of spider nature. But I don't know that we really see her behaving in a really, you know, empathic and like philanthropic way way to anyone else like later on in the story like it it doesn't actually it, at least in it the doesn't come issues that we read yeah yeah it doesn't define a part of her character she's yeah. short-tempered in a lot of the interactions we see with other people she isn't self-sacrificing or she doesn't really make a strong effort to see what other people are feeling like the third or fourth issue she's training with taskmaster and he says who are you jessica and i, I came away feeling like i'm not really sure who she is like Yes, what absolutely. Her, what her psychosis is. <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree. I also wonder if that was somewhat the intent, mm-hmm. was the idea to leave her in a place where she doesn't necessarily have a clear idea who she is, because a lot of Bendis' stories with Spider-Woman previous to that were wrapped around that idea mm-hmm. that uh, she was a double agent for Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D. She was kidnapped for a time and... and being portrayed by a Skrull Queen. So that or all Bendis' work with uh, Jessica tends to be shot through with identity questions. Having said that, 
it doesn't necessarily make for a satisfying payoff to a story to leave her with like where you're no clearer on who she is than she is. Right. And I have yeah. to say, I have to give a nod to the, that Venice story, the post-secret Skrull Invasion one. Mm-hmm. It was also a motion comic. I think it was one of Marvel's first motion comics. And yeah. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. I remember watching it at first and being like, oh, the animation's kind of clunky, but they hit that third episode, and mm-hmm. she has this line. I'll never forget it. And she's beating up the Skrull, and she says, you think I can't take it? I can take it. I was born like this. I was born broken. And I had a drink, and as and that came on, I was like, oh! And I got like choked up. Mm-hmm. And I got completely choked up that Jessica Drew feels this way about herself and felt so, you know, obviously taken advantage of us, to put it extremely lightly, but her whole life was ruined by the scrolls. And I just loved how, how he portrayed that. So mm. I just want to tell people to pick up that book. I forget what year it came out, but I know it was right after Secret Invasion. And to watch the motion comics around Hulu. So <laughs> definitely take advantage of that. So moving on, so we get to see Taskmaster, which is cool. I guess some cool villains. I guess the reason why I think he's cool is because I hear the guy in Marvel, spoiler alert, the guy in Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is going to end up being Taskmaster. Has anyone heard that? I've heard rumors, but I don't think it's been made official by anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm still taking that with a heavy pinch of salt, to be honest. I think Marvel are very good at throwing curveballs in Marvel Studios, I still can't believe that with a 2018 film, they're already building up to it with the Inhumans in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> I think they've got a heck of a lot of curveballs planned in that series, so I'm very, very wary of believing that rumor at the minute, to be honest with you, Justin. So going back to the comic a little bit, we were talking about the coma that she goes into, and I was a little conflicted because I felt like, you know, she comes out of this coma, and taking on what you were saying about it before, Kathy, she's still seven years old, basically, or six years old, but they don't seem to address the fact that her mind is still like that. You know, again, I guess I felt like she was slightly incomplete and I I can't quite put my finger on it still. And I don't think that's to say that she was written badly or anything like that. I I really, really enjoyed the comic, but I wish that they had gone deeper into her psychosis. What do you guys think? I found the dialogue particularly, I, I think it was very hard for the writer to do the dialogue well, because what they had to do initially when she'd grown up and come out of that coma, she'd still have a child's way of speaking right and they tried to reflect that but i felt that most of the way they reflected that was through the words mummy and daddy Mm. and that wasn't quite enough for me and what you'd then be wanting to see is as she acclimatizes and develops you'd be wanting the language she used to slightly change and mature as well and i didn't quite capture that um and it just felt a little bit off the one bit where the dialogue actually jumped out at me was when it was a great scene at the end of the fourth issue when she's broken into the hydra ship and sees her dad and you've got this gorgeous image of her in silhouette um even my wife was reading and loved that image and she says daddy and i loved that moment when suddenly you felt the child had broken through again Absolutely, and you actually yeah. felt this is somebody who hasn't developed quite but it wasn't consistently there in the dialogue and even in the way the character worked and interacted with others it didn't quite feel consistent with how i'd expect someone to be in that position i agree i guess i wanted the little girl to break through even more and not only that but i wanted the defense mechanism or the shield against the little girl to be a little bit more pronounced i guess i wanted to see her fear of uh, vulnerability of showing the little girl and i wish they could have gone a little bit more into that yeah do you want to have anything to add about that 
I'd agree with you. I, I guess it's just one of the challenges that we've sort of all been talking about uh, with these kinds of origin stories. There are so many plot points that you feel like you have to hit that maybe there just isn't. It's hard to balance that yeah. with going deeper. Like you have all this broadness that you want to cover. It's hard to get deep with the characters. Maybe. But I have to still say, uh, I read this is the sec- my second time reading it, and I seriously enjoyed it both times. So mm-hmm. not to say don't pick it up. Definitely pick it up. But it's a challenging material for any writer, I would say. And I would argue part of the reason we don't see the little girl more is because she's surrounded by people who are very dedicated to not letting that little girl mm-hmm. out. Whether it's Hydra who's looking to exploit her abilities as one of their agents, or Nick Fury who's trying to turn that back on Hydra, or her father who sure. wants her as a test subject. No one who she sees after she wakes up from her coma has any interest in developing her as an adult. And using her, but not an interest in exploring her feelings or, or who she is coming out of the coma. They're very dedicated just to, she's a weapon. And I have to say, it had some similarities to my favorite origin story ever, which is actually one of my favorite comics ever, which is X-23 Innocence Lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, some of it reminded me of that. And, and I know, Kathy, you see the problems in the origin stories, but I think origin stories is something that Marvel does so well sometimes. And I think that with that, they really got it right. And I think with this, they got it yeah. right too. I just wish that there was more of certain aspects. So what did you guys think of certain people being alive in her life that she thought were dead? Well, I mean, we kind of Let's face it. Anyone can look it up on Wikipedia, right, so I don't see a problem with spoilering it, right. to um, be honest, Justin. Yeah. Cat, meat, non-bag. Okay, cool. So it's the parents who are, she finds out are alive. Was that a big reveal to anybody? I liked the reveal. I didn't pause to question it when she thought they were dead, though, I guess. Right. So it didn't have the impact of like, oh, but it was well done. You could see how undoing it was for her, how quickly she unraveled the moment Fury said it. Right. And that her initial reaction was to lash out at him, which I think says a lot about where her character was at that point, how distrusting she was of everything, uh, to the point that she wanted her parents desperately to be alive, but she couldn't stop herself from attacking the person who told her they were. Um, from my perspective, as I mentioned, um, my wife actually read this one with me, and what was amusing was that literally the minute that Wyndham said that the parents were dead, Fee just laughed and said, they'll be back by the end of the series. <laughs> was her immediate comment. And I couldn't help chuckling, because I have to be honest, I felt like they're going to be back myself but she'd put it so well in that second um i felt it was the right move from a narrative view i didn't feel it was a surprise it made complete narrative sense i didn't see what happened to a mum coming right that was a good twist and i was quite impressed at the writer for twisting that round to be honest like that but i wasn't surprised at them coming back so unfortunately at the end we find out that hydra or a huge part of hydra is her father who has this creepy reaction to seeing his daughter and we see all these other spider women that he's creating and i thought it was freaky actually and i thought the comment that freaked me out was that one of them was sleeping with the father that scared me (laughs) and i guess did you guys feel that that moment was as i don't want to say gross as off-putting as i did I think it fit with the father's sort of dehumanizing view of the people around him that it is off-putting to us because we sort of get that in some ways, although it's not a literal daughter to him, it's kind of a, a figurative daughter. But to him it wasn't. It was just another project. And he doesn't hesitate to exploit his projects for whatever he wants, whether it be to make them a weapon or to you know sleep with them. So I think it was just another piece in the puzzle of this guy who has largely left his humanity behind. Agreed? Yep. I couldn't put anything to that 
add anything to that? Well, it's something that I'm thinking about. One of the things that I think that's interesting about Jessica Drew and that I think the smarter writers work with when they're writing Spider-Woman stories is actually the character's origin, like not within the universe, but the actual like commercial circumstances behind Mm. coming up with her and her early appearances and also like the tendency to draw her poorly or put her in questionable poses and costumes. Like my impression of Jessica Drew as Spider-Woman has always been as uh, a token that gets kind of flung around by these male writers Mm -hmm. and her actual story within the universe has also reflected that. And I think that that moment when a bunch of nondescript but all fully adult and just like multicultural for no good reason spider women appear is like it kind of works as a commentary on when people are unreflective about writing women characters like mm-hmm. let's make a black spider woman because we need one it's a gap in the market as opposed to what we see in some of the later comics that we read today where people really think about characterization and yes what would this woman actually wear what would this woman actually speak like how would she actually land on a rooftop so yeah even with some of the things in the story that i thought didn't hit as well as i wish they did i think it still works really well as a kind of meta commentary on spider woman Hmm. so we're gonna have to end the segment now and when we come back we're gonna talk about this issue of spider woman that tom had us read tom which one was it it's a late Uh, number five number five it came out in 2015 yeah uh this month oh this month okay and i'm gonna tell you all why i hate it when we come back No, just kidding. Um, No, I'm just kidding. I really hated it. But uh, you'll find out why in a minute. (laughs) Okay, cool. So we're back talking about Spider-Women. And Spider-Woman 15 was something that we all read that came out this year. and Five. Five, just kidding. Yeah, Spider-Woman 5 was something we all read for this podcast, and it came out this year. And I wasn't a fan. And I wasn't a fan because I thought it wasn't written well. I thought it was written well. I thought the art was great. I enjoyed the new costume. But I just thought... There's no way Jessica Drew is that fucking happy. I just Mm. didn't buy it. I was like, who is this woman, like, who just read Dianetics? I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, this is not Jessica Drew. The Jessica Drew I know is very torn up over the scroll thing still. You know, she had her whole life taken away. She's still dealing with all these things from her childhood. You know, she's a very serious woman. And I thought, I thought for a moment I was reading post-Gail Simone Batgirl. And I guess I just, I didn't like that direction. I see why they had to reinvent the character of Jessica Drew and make her appeal to younger audiences. But I just, I didn't buy that that was the character. And like I said, although I enjoyed reading the comic and I thought it was well written, I didn't like the direction they took her in. So feel free to agree or disagree with me, guys. Don't you think there's something in like how shallow that happiness is? That like she, it's just a, a coding over this uncontrollable violence yeah. at any moment. Like what, the moment when she's back in the office that she's rented and she's smashing through the wall for no good reason. Like, I feel like the perfect image for what I'm talking about is her pouring the coffee from a cracked Mm -hmm. coffee pot. It's Mm -hmm. like, here I am being friendly and neighborly, but it's not going well right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of this that's a relaunch. That's the thing that's interested me with the recent Spider-Woman series. Because before, she's typically not had anything to do with Spider-Man. She's been in the orbit of the Avengers. And if you talk about Spider-Woman, you think of her in the Avengers context. But now the first four issues were all Spider-Verse tie-ins. Mm-hmm. And this issue felt very much like it was bathed in the light of Spider-Man with yet yeah, a sense of humor that was a bit stronger than you typically got with references so that it's explained away as, well, once you spent too much time with so many versions of him, you can't help but crack wise sort of comments as though... 
she's been repurposed into another part of Marvel's franchise. And that really interested me. Um, I think that might be what you're picking up on, to be honest with you, Justin, that they've actually too, repurposed yeah. the character and moved to a different niche of the whole Marvel universe and their whole sales structure. And as a result, they've redesigned her a little. And why do I miss the old niche? Because Justin likes depressed characters. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I make no bones about it. I like dark, depressing shit. And now she's happy, and I, I get that the shit, you know, they're trying to show, like, cracks in her personality and stuff, but... I didn't even feel like she was happy, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I thought she was flippant, but I don't think that's the same thing as being happy. Yeah, flippant is a perfect word. You know, I was like, what, why all this flippancy? And see, that didn't read as unusual for her character to me. Okay. Because in uh, New Avengers, she would be frequently flippant as well. I mean, okay. she had the dark undertones, I thought, in New Avengers in a way that may not be present in this book yet, but she was often sort of unwilling to engage things more flippant than investing emotion in. And so that felt consistent to me. And I just really like the idea of the plot that's presented here. This um, family members of supervillains are disappearing and the bit with Porcupine at the end where he reveals he's doing it because someone threatened his family. Uh, I thought that was a pretty good mystery and a pretty good hook for this new version or this new story. I agree with that completely. All right, so time to move on to some of the other Spider-Women. So this is the arc where we're introduced to the now infamous Spider-Gwen, who was never meant to be, who now is, and who Tom is a really huge fan of. And <laughs> Definitely. we're also introduced uh, previously to Silk, who was bitten by the same radioactive spider Peter Parker was bitten by, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. And Kathy agrees. That's factually true. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm just a fact machine. So of all time, who are your guys' favorite Spider-Women and uh, why? Well, I guess my first favorite was... Not any of the ones we talked about, actually, was the black-suited Spider-Woman who's gone on to be Arachne and now is Madam Web. Right, what's, what was her name again? Carpenter. Oh, I can't remember her first Julia. name. Julia. Julia Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah. And I think a, she wore a version of the black costume, which was always a cool costume. Right. And she was the, the Spider-Woman running around when I first started reading comics. She was in Avengers West Coast and that seminal classic Force Works. So for me, that was my first exposure. So you always sort of like connect with your first. And Jessica Drew just really wasn't on the scene when I started reading comics. So even though I knew she was the first Spider-Woman, I never had that kind of emotional connection. When I was a little kid, there was actually a Spider-Woman cartoon. I don't know if anyone oh, sees this, but you can YouTube it. It's a Spider-Woman cartoon from the 1970s. And I just thought she was very adorable when I was a little kid. And I thought I wanted Venom Blast, too. And she did this thing with her arms. And she was just like, Whoosh. and yeah, I thought she was awesome. So that's all I have to say about Spider-Woman. For me, it would actually be none of the above. My favorite one is a character called Arana who was introduced in the Amazing Fantasy series. Mm -hmm. And to me, the character just has so much potential that's never quite been explored. And it irritates me that she's not had a potential fulfilled. She got sidetracked into this cosmic battle between the wasps and the spiders that was just going on and on and on and on. When if they'd freed her up a little bit and given her a chance to have a bit of fun as a character, I think she'd have been a breakout character. Um, so she's my favorite. Um, she's actually going to be in the Spider-Verse oh, Secret cool. Wars book because um, she's the current Spider-Girl in the 616 reality oh. of all things. Wait, so let me get um, this straight. We read all these Spider-Woman comics, but no one likes the Spider-Woman that we read? Oh, I like the, You said Vault. Oh, I love the one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> okay, so... But uh, yeah, she'd be my favorite. In that case, I like the one from... The Jessica Drew from Ultimate Spider-Man who was really like... 
Peter Parker with long hair. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. yeah. I she's actually a cool really character. Didn't. I just wanted to fit in with you guys. She's Black Widow now. Yeah. Oh, is she? Yep. Yeah. No, I just like Jessica Drew, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um to me, she was never this like sex symbol until recently, the the drawing with the butt. Oh. Yeah. Which actually gets a reference in issue five. Yeah, 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 which was great. Um, yeah, I love that line. Yeah, no, that's a really great line. <laughs> you know, and it's I feel bad because it's just you know, a butt and the next thing you know, she's a controversial figure. But she's, you know, I an awesome character and I think that she goes way back when to the seventies and she appears in some X Men comics and does a great job and I wish that she got more credit, I would say. All right, so we also talked about this, the least favorite and least well-used of all time. Is there anyone that you think needs like a boost or, or is poised to break out? Well, in terms of the women of the spider who got the shortest draw, I'd say it's Maddie Franklin, who was, I believe she went under Spider-Girl for a while. She ended up dying in, I think, Alias, ultimately. She, for a while, was who they were deriving the MGH from, the mutant growth hormone. Mm. And so that was a tough end for her. But there were some intriguing things to her. For one thing, she ends up getting adopted by J. Jonah Jameson and his wife. And that would have been really intriguing to see her operating as Spider-Girl under the roof of the person who arguably hates Spider-Man the most, who doesn't wear a costume. But alas, it just never happened, unfortunately. That would have been so cool. All right, so we also read uh, Silk and Spider-Gwen. And we don't have a lot of time left, so I want to just get in our thoughts on these two new Spider-Characters. And how do we feel about... The fact that they're, that they're women. How do we feel about... I'm not sure if you'd call Silk and her story a retcon, but they do sort of go back to mm. fill in stuff yeah. that happened way back when. Um, it's certainly retroactive continuity, yeah. Yes, thank you, Tom. Wow, thank you. That's like the perfect term. <laughs> um, so how do you guys feel about that? I personally am always kind of wary of the, oh, this is the story you missed behind the panels kinds of stories. And Spider-Man in particular has been recipient of it, the Ezekiel storyline from a while back fit into that that having been said i like the character of silk a lot so ultimately the the proof is in the pudding if you will you know if the storyline is good enough i'm willing to overlook it um and i feel like i'm still kind of on shaky ground on that but uh so far i like the character enough that i'm willing to follow and see where it goes at least even though i don't love the fact that it's this thing that happened that we haven't told anyone about for however many years right but that was original sin all over wasn't it the whole idea of it all was find a big bad secret from somebody's past and just tell that story Mm -hmm. um so realistically the whole original sin was exactly what you're describing with that um yeah yeah i like her as a character too i I do kind of wonder how sustainable the idea is of of inserting this new story in a story that's already been told and retold so many times but it's kind of fun to see her interacting with spider-man occasionally sometimes having short phone calls with him and i think maybe if if she follows her family farther away from new york city i I think it could be a story with legs that would be really interesting to follow yeah that's what interests me the most, actually. I think they've got a really interesting angle. This person trying to rediscover the life that she'd lost. And there's a few comics I've seen in the past where there have been spin-offs where I felt they'd not put in the effort to establish their own background characters. The advantage Spider-Man has is he's got strong supporting characters. It's not just Spidey. There's a whole world around him. And I've seen times like with the Nightcrawler series in the early 2000s where they took Nightcrawler, but it was just Nightcrawler surrounded by the X-Men and they hadn't developed a world really around him. What I like with this one is you get the feel that this character, Silk, the writers are going to try and actually build this world, this background cast. And that's why I think she might well surprise us because if they do 
good work with the background cast, I think they might have a sticker. It all depends on what story they've got planned with that background cast to me. I actually think it's healthy to move her further away from Spider-Man. Have her take over, sure, have her take over some of the old background cast now that he's got Parker Industries as his background cast. That's fine, the character's going spare. But move her beyond Spider-Man's orbit so she stands on her own two feet and give her her own sort of world around her would be what I'd say. I agree. I mean, I think it's about time. I don't know how many comics there are with the main character being an Asian female, but I think that's really wonderful. I think some people who I know in the Asian American community have expressed a lot of interest in this character and think it's really wonderful that she's headlining this comic. So I think that's a really great thing. And let's talk a little bit about Spider-Gwen because I think Spider-Gwen has tapped into something that's also really important <laughs> because she's such a, you know, she's such a surprising character to make it to the big time. Yeah. So she's only three issues in, but what did you guys think of the three issues that we read? And what do you think of the phenomenon that is Spider-Gwen? So I'll let somebody else go first before I talk in excitement. <laughs> yeah, I think, let me just get out of the way for you then. I think it's so damn stylish. It's just such mm. a good looking book. And I, don't know, <laughs> I, I could hand it to any 15-year-old girl on the street who wouldn't want to talk to me otherwise, and I think she'd be really into it. It's a really good-looking thing and really compelling in that way. And, like, anytime a writer in a certain genre tries to, like, ape another genre, I think it sort of doesn't go very well. Like, when a dramatic writer tries to include a comedian in one of their stories, it's always inevitably a really terrible comedian. But I think that the song that the Mary Jane sang is actually seems like it's a kind of a good song. <laughs> so even though it's just text yeah. and the melody was retroactive. But that's my really intelligent opinion about <laughs> Spider Gwen. Yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned the stylishness, you know, the neon graffiti she uses in the first issue of her own book. The fact that her costume is incredibly unique, yet still evokes the connection to Spider-Man is great. Yeah. And for the first time in a while, I mean, I can't remember the last time a comic character made their debut in one issue and the demand for him or her to get their own book was so instantaneous. It's been quite a while. So that was really cool to see, to see that sort of collectively comics got together and were like, no, this needs to happen. And then to have Marvel answer the call has been great. She never got her own book, or maybe she did get her own book with Exiles, but it reminded me of back in the 90s with Blink. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that time? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was a similar kind of phenomenon. You're right. Um, with Blink, something about the character just grabbed at the fans' minds and they wanted to see more. And I reckon if Blink had been done today, she'd have gone viral on social media mm. just the same way. And she did actually get her own book. I think it only lasted six issues. Oh, really? But she did get her own book. I don't think it was very good, if I remember rightly. But she did get her own book. <laughs> And she was leader of the Exiles for a while. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which was fun. I think for me with Spider-Gwen, the thing I've loved is just the sheer creativity of it. Because the character idea was originally just a penciled note on a list of ideas that Dan Slott had for characters you could have as spiders in Spider-Verse. And he literally just had written down Gwen Stacy as Spider-Woman. And that was all the design that had originally got into it. Mm. And then they were talking around the Marvel offices and Jason Latour was asked, do you want to do something? And he looked and he remembered Emma Stone's portrayal in the Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man movies and was like, actually, yeah, I could have fun with this. Mm, And that's how it rippled out. So utterly random how it's all built out. I do think the movies, in a way, seeded the ground because I think if this had happened before Gwen Stacy was much more commonly known, 
because ultimately Mary Jane's the love interest in the first movie trilogy. Gwen doesn't even exist, if I remember rightly, in that first Spider-Man trilogy no, that Sony third, did. In the third film. Oh, does she appear in the third remember film? He kisses her as part of that. Right. Yeah. It's Bryce Dallas Howard in the third film. Oh um, yes. But she's not. Thank you. I'd completely forgotten. Yeah, she's not yeah. really recognizable as Gwen Stacy in the right. same way, though, as Emma Stone's performance. I mean, there's something also kind of beautiful about. In the main Marvel universe, Gwen Stacy being this incredibly tragic figure, one of the biggest tragedies of Peter Parker's life, and also sort of the first, effectively, uh, of the Marvel Age of Comics, yes. girlfriend who was killed by a supervillain. And then seeing her now as young and vibrant, and the tragedy in her universe is Peter Parker tried to be like her and ended up dosing himself with something that ultimately killed him. Yeah, it's A, it's an interesting take on your partner dying because of what you do. And B, it's just fascinating to see her, a character who's always been kind of portrayed as locked in that era where she was first introduced in the yes. mid-60s um, as somebody very much in the now and very much connected to the energy of today. I think it's been great. Again, I love the background cast in Spider-Gwen as well. I, mean, I, love I feel dad. like Jason Latour mm-hmm. is just having fun right. with what he can do. Foggy Nelson is a friend of her father's. Yeah. That was a moment where I just burst into laughter. I was like, that's a nice talk. <laughs> Matt Murdock is working for the Kingpin in this world. It's like, where is Jason Luttrell going to take it? I'm actually a little bit worried about Secret Wars because I don't want this world to end. I'm having too much fun enjoying it and seeing what randomness can come out of it next. Mm-hmm. I love Frank Castle as a character as well in this yes. world. Fascinating portrayal and again it's a really smart one given that in the spider-man comics in the mainstream 616 continuity he was originally introduced as a guy who thought spider-man was a villain Mm -hmm. and tried to kill him so you've got this beautiful flip side that jason letter is doing that's so referential and reverent to the original comics but is still fresh and original as well i love it no, absolutely. And just to have heard somebody mention the dad, who I think is great. And I love that their dynamic now is that he knows he's kind of trying to protect yeah. her, but at the same time, he's in this place as a police officer that, like, he's been assigned specifically to investigate her. So there's a great tension there. And you were speaking to the other characters who exist in the main Marvel, you who are popping up in different ways in this one. And I often, alternate world stories where they feel like they need to account for everybody kind of drives me crazy. But I think, as you pointed out, it's done very uniquely here, and it's very well integrated, that it's Frank Castle, so there's that, like, oh, it's Frank Castle, that's cool. But you never feel like the story's slowing down to make sure you notice it's Frank Castle. They mention his name, but Absolutely. he belongs in the story. He's not just dropped in there. Matt Murdock belongs there. Foggy Nelson belongs there. So they feel integrated, even though they are existing yeah. characters we recognize from other things. Absolutely. It feels organic. Yeah. You know? It feels like it yeah. belongs in the story. I love the vulture as the villain mm-hmm. as well. He's really gripped me, this different take on the vulture. The creepy green mist weirded me out at first because mm-hmm. I was like, what on earth has that got to do with the vulture? That's Green Goblin. And then in issue three, there's this throwaway reference that Toombs makes of he worked for Osborne and dreamt of Paul Osborne's tricks. And I'm just like, oh gosh, there's going to be Norman Osborn coming up soon. <laughs> and you can see where it's going with that. I feel like I'd anyway. Latour might do something completely different because he's creative enough to. Um, but I just sat there going, oh, this is cool. That's why the green mist, it's building up. Oh, wow. Um, 
Sorry, can you tell I'm enthusiastic about this comment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. But unfortunately, you guys, we have to stop here because Kathy has to catch a train and it's one in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to Star Wars, we have a really exciting Star Wars announcement that Tim is going to give us. And before he get, does, please check out his articles on Marvel.com. Uh, I was complimenting him earlier on this Psych Ward article he wrote about Emma Frost, one of my favorite characters. And it was just so well written and so amazing and captured the character so well. So please... Please, 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 please check them out. And I think we might be ready for that announcement. Okay, great. And thank you for the compliment. Coming in October, uh, there's a book being released called Star Wars, The Dark Side of the Mind. Uh, it's a psychological take on the universe of Star Wars, written by several authors who are involved in psychology, including myself. I will have a chapter in the book. Wow. Yeah, pretty exciting. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon.com. And as I mentioned, it is due out in October, uh, in time to give you a little refresher before the movie debuts in December. So. And... Uh, we're going to put a link to that on the website, so right. please, 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 please pick that up. And this is, like, really exciting, so thank you so much, Tim, for coming cool. on our podcast yeah, and telling us about cool. this. Yeah, Thank you. Really very exciting news. Um, probably the most exciting news we've ever had. It's <laughs> definitely the most yeah. exciting news. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, thank you, Tim, for stopping by. Thank you. We hope to, in the future, to talk you into coming to uh, more podcasts and giving your all right. um, psychological perspective that yeah. all these characters require. <laughs> and, Kathy, so nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. <laughs> and Tom, at six in the morning in the UK. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> and you just have sure. to say thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Sorry, my brain just did a freeze. I was like, I can keep complimenting you if you want, but it is the end of the episode. I think my brain just completely froze and was like, did he just say my name? <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you again for listening. And I have to go through all this bullshit again, which is you can find us on the web at comicsfirst.com, facebook.com slash comicsfirst, twitter at, at comicsfirst, youtube.com slash comicsfirsttv, yada, 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 yada. Check out our videos. Check out our podcast, comicsfirst.com slash podcast. We syndicate our articles everywhere now, so you can't miss us. And we are just generally awesome from now on. That's all I have to say. <laughs> and, oh, wait, and Kathy has a special sign-off for us that she always does. Yes, I always but I forgot do. at the last episode. <laughs> it's to, fine. To we can put one in and post. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for stopping in for another Comics First podcast. We hope that you have gotten stuck in our Comics First web. Sticky web. Come back. There we go. <laughs> wow. That has, now, that's the best one. You've been no, saving no. that one for years. I admit that. Yeah, I, I've been taking it around, workshopping it in a couple of places, gotten a lot of feedback, but I think it was perfect and it was time to debut it. Actually, Sticky I'm, web promo. I'm actually submitting that as my Columbia essay for grad school. <laughs> You're in. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>